Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. We're going to drop straight in today to our passage, so if you uh, are wanting to flip, turn, tap, swipe, whatever you do in order to get there, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at the whole chapter, um, though Pastor Brandon did a great job of expositing those first three verses. I feel like those first three verses are in essential to the understanding of the whole chapter, and so we're just going to reread them, maybe rehash them slightly today, uh, just to ensure that everybody that's here today, who maybe wasn't here last week, gets the context of what we're talking about. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Um, and I'm not giving you any time to do this at all, so go ahead and stand up if you have uh, the ability to do so for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you're still flipping there, that's okay. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, A, we want to give one to you. Go out to the Connection Center when you get a chance. We will give you a Bible, no strings attached. Uh, and uh, if, you are, if you don't have one with you today, that's okay. We're going to have it on the screens. Uh, hopefully, Dale got my uh, scripture. Yeah, there we go. We're good to go. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, the whole chapter. It says this. Now concerning food to idols, or offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and the one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your conscience, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning asking for your grace, that Lord, we might understand what it is you have for us in your word. Lord, we know that you have given us freedom, freedom from the particulars of the law. You've given us freedom, Lord, of conscience that, Lord, we might live freely unto you, and that is the important part. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see how to live unto you, and that we might live in love toward one another. Lord, reveal this to us today as we search your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 
Y'all can have a seat. Again, last week we looked at verses 1 through 3 in particular, but I kind of want to rehash them just a little bit this week because the foundation of this whole chapter is laid in these first three verses. The first three verses read like this. We just read them. Now, considering, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he, does, or that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And again, I'm not going to rehash this entire passage, but I want you to see that in this passage, we discover that there are two types of knowledge. One type of knowledge puffs up and makes us arrogant. And another type builds up, which Paul calls love. Both types of knowledge are similar in at least one way. You have to at least have a basic understanding of the facts about a person or a concept in order to have either kind of knowledge. But what that understanding produces is important. It's either arrogance or it's love. If it's your first time today, I can honestly say that I love you. Now, I admit this is a general kind of love, but it is love nonetheless. And you might say, well, but you don't know anything about me. You just said that you have to know some facts about something in order to really love it or to produce arrogance. Well, I think I do actually understand some things about you. If you are here today, I am assuming at least that you are a human being. Any aliens? Y'all see that thing in Mexico? Yeah, right, right anyway. That's a different subject. Not real. That's my personal opinion, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> I forgot, no opinions from the pulpit. Anyway, no aliens in the congregation today. That's a good thing. I know that you're a human, human being then, and I know that human beings are made in the image of God and are therefore worthy of respect and honor. Human beings are fallen and sinful, and we're deserving of God's wrath. We are in need of a Savior who will restore us to a right relationship with God and with one another. We're the kind of people that Jesus died for. And we are able to be saved by grace through faith alone. Just like me. In all of those respects. That's who you are generally, isn't it? That's human beings. So I do have a basic understanding of who you are. Yet none of that is love in and of itself. See, left as it is, I could selectively use that knowledge of facts for my own gain. I could exploit your sense of self-worth. I could exploit your guilt for sin. I could get at your need of salvation and try to fill that void with something else. I could try to live my best life at the expense of yours. That's the kind of knowledge that puffs up. Or, I could use that knowledge for your good. I could give you the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners, people like you and me, and that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I can faithfully teach God's word today so that even if you and I never meet personally, I have given you the best of what God has given me. That's love. One kind of knowledge puffs up. The other is love. Likewise, we can know about God uh, such that our knowledge makes us proud and arrogant. Did you know, for example, that demons believe? 
they too have knowledge about God, but they have no love for God. They have knowledge that puffs up. James 2.19 says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The better way is the way of love. Rather than simply knowing about God and letting that make us arrogant and proud, we can take that knowledge and we can turn it into love for who he is and what he's done. And what has he done? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Without that initial experience of God's love, our love for him would make little sense. It's really hard to worship a God whose wrath is all you know. Yet he loved us first. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be saved from his wrath. That's 1 John 4.10. But even if we loved God, we can sometimes slip into periods of selfishness or hatred of others. We need to be reminded that our knowledge and freedom are not meant for our own good, but for the good of others. Read on in 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 20 through 21. Just on the, on the back of, we love because God first loved us. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so we see that God's love for us turns into love for him. And if we have love for him, we must also love our brother. This is the subject of our passage today. It's not primarily about what you can and can't do as a Christian. A lot of people go to this passage and they go, well, this is how I prove Christian freedom to one degree or another. Are they argue against Christian freedom with this passage? But no, I think the main point of this passage is that your freedom, whatever that may be, your freedom of conscience should not be used for your own selfish gain, but for the good of your brother. If you've known me for a little while, you might have heard me utter the phrase, Technically correct is the best kind of correct. I don't know. I love me some technical correctness, right? Somebody could say that the sky is blue, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's correct, right? But I want to know, like, what kind of blue is it? Why is it blue? Give me a bit more depth and detail. Make it technically correct for me. There's a way to be vaguely correct and precisely correct. Anyway, being technically correct is it's great. I enjoy it. And look, it means that we get to have like a depth of knowledge about that subject. You can have technically correct theology, but it means little if that's the goal of your faith. Having a head full of knowledge is not the point. It's something else. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses this issue. The Corinthians had heads full of hard theology, but their hearts were hardened against those around them. Their knowledge didn't move them toward love. It made them arrogant when it should have led them toward their brother. But knowledge is important. I'm not saying that we shouldn't need to know things. And Paul actually does a masterful job of addressing, agreeing with, and expounding the truths that these knowledgeable Christians held dear. He actually comes to them and he says, you know what, I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to look at all of the argumentation that you have for your position, and I'm going to be willing to say, yeah, I think that part is right, and that part is right, and that part is right. You're good there, but now let me address the problem. It's a really good way to gain a hearing with someone, isn't it? To say, hey, you're right. Let me talk about all the things that you're right about. 
Now let me show you how that's inconsistent, right? Good way to gain a hearing. That's what Paul does here. He begins in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. As with last week, there are some editorial quotes uh, in the text here for the sake of showing what are believed to be Corinthian sayings or quotations from a letter that Paul received from them. These quotes are not uh, in the original text. Uh, They're just there as helpful indications of what the the general consensus amongst biblical scholars is about this passage. Uh, If you prefer to read it without it, um, I I think you lose a little bit of of nuance there, but uh, I I don't think it actually changes the meaning of the text. So uh, you can feel free to read the text without quotes. Uh, However, uh, there's there's probably... uh, uh, yeah, the, ultimately these, these quotes are there for your help, and, uh, and, and I accept them. I, as I've done study on this, I, I think that this is what's going on here. Uh, Paul is making a habit of just going, hey, like, you've said these things, let me address them directly. And so rather than tearing down everything, Paul uh, uses these Corinthians' right conclusions as a basis for confirming the truth before addressing the error. Uh, going down to 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 5 through 6, it says, For although there may, be so many, uh, may, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many idols, or many lords, sorry, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul is saying, you are technically correct in your statements. And he actually says, you know what, let me just flesh that out for you even more. And so Paul exposits these truths that they have accepted. And he adds vibrant detail. First, he acknowledges that there are many so-called gods. So-called, I'm going to put that in, in quotes because what he's saying is they, they are, uh, I think the word there is based on the, uh, the Greek word for face, like it's like it's called that. It's, it looks like that. It's a facade. So these so-called gods. He acknowledges that there are many of these. And this isn't news to us. Lots of people uh, worship other little g gods in this world, don't they? Somebody's phone's going off. Or somebody's playing a great video game, one of the two. That's okay. There are lots of so-called gods in this world, and this isn't news to us. But, and, and some people actually worship people or objects as gods. We see this in many cults, things like that. Uh, People worship other people as gods, or they worship objects. This is more of an ancient practice to carve an idol and call it a god. It's it's just a reality, and Paul acknowledges it. And yet Paul also acknowledges some level of realness to these entities. Despite them being misnamed, he says that these so-called gods do exist in one way or another, either in heaven or on earth. And so the idol which is called a god is not real in the sense that it is not a god. Yet the object exists physically, correct? Correct? You catching what I'm saying? All right. Likewise, he also acknowledges that there are some objects, some objects of worship, some things called gods in the heavenly or spiritual realm, which call themselves god, want to be called gods, but are not. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he solidifies this idea. He acknowledges that there is a spiritual reality even behind the idols. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 
verse 20, just the first part of it, no, he says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. There is a spiritual reality to the worship happening there. Like the real physical idol worshipped as a little g god, there are real spiritual entities who set themselves up as little g gods. Neither has a legitimate claim to godhood, and neither counts for anything before God, yet both have real existence. Paul goes on to affirm what the Corinthians already know, that there is one God and one Lord. Idols are nothing. Something to note here, though, Paul creates an interesting contrast between God the Father and Christ the Lord. Now, you might be wondering why he would do such a thing. Is he maybe trying to say that Jesus isn't God? There are all sorts of arguments like that. No, that's not what he's saying. He was actually showing that neither idols, men, nor demons can rightly lay claim to godhood. The Father is the one from whom are all things and for whom we exist. He's drawing a distinction here of the function of the people, the persons of the Godhead. So he says, the Father is the one from whom are all things and for whom we exist. He is both the originator and the purpose for our existence. And then he goes on to Christ and he says, Christ is the one through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He is the divine Logos by whom all things were created and the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. The reason that Paul calls these distinctions into light is because he wants to show that worship of anything or anyone else is excluded. No other thing has any right to call itself God and you have no right to ascribe Godhood to any other thing. Whether idols, men, or demons, nothing else can rightly claim those things. They cannot rightly claim worship. They cannot rightly demand it. Now that's some great theology right there. And the Corinthians had that. That's good theology. It's deep, it's rich, it's technically correct. These knowledgeable people though, man, like, don't you just feel for them? Like, they knew this stuff. They understood it, and yet Paul is about to kind of lay the hammer down in just a moment. But the argument from the Corinthians is this. They were implying an argument here. If idols are nothing and the food offered to them is nothing, that means we're free to do as we please. Eat it, don't eat it. No big deal. Not a big deal either way. The logic is sound. Have you found a point of disagreement yet? I haven't. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. I can follow your logic. You're, you're correct in these things. And yet it becomes clear that this knowledge was not being used in love. It was an excuse for selfishness. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Before we move too much further, I want to point out the two groups that Paul references in this chapter. It's probably there right in front of your minds, but I'm just going to call it out. The first group is those who possess this knowledge about idols. Uh, the term stronger brother is sometimes used to describe people from this group, though I think that term actually carries a little bit too much positive baggage. Can you carry positive baggage? You know what I mean? There's a little bit too much positivity to it to call someone the stronger brother. It just sounds good. 
that these people are maybe stronger in conscience in one particular area, but I, I don't necessarily think that the stronger brother here is the one who is stronger in the faith. If they were, I think that their behavior might have been different. The second group is those who do not possess that knowledge, and those people might be tempted to eat food as really offered to an idol. These people are sometimes referred to as the weaker brother. Yet again, I think there's a little too much implied here. These people are weaker in conscience in a particular area, but we cannot rightly say that they are necessarily weaker in the faith simply because they struggle in a particular area where others may not. Just a thought. While the whole church at Corinth, though, would have heard this letter read aloud, then, but Paul is addressing those in that first group, those who have knowledge, these knowledgeable people, the stronger brother, if you will. I'm drawing attention to this because without that distinction of the addressee of this passage, Paul actually may seem to contradict himself in 1 Corinthians 10 when we get there. If you want to go read, go read. It's very interesting. But I want you to read it with some context. He may seem to contradict himself, but with the context of understanding that this was addressed to those with knowledge, quote-unquote, we can see that 1 Corinthians 8 is just addressing this one problem, this one group. Then in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul says that the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, he means that those who eat and drink in worship and faith to those idols really are worshiping demons. Am I making some sense? So that these people with knowledge could walk into a pagan temple and eat the food there in clear conscience because they know that the idol is nothing. They aren't worshiping. They aren't participating in worship. That's not in their hearts. They could do what they please. But this second group, this, or this larger group, Paul is addressing them and saying, look, those who truly partake of, those, of that food in that idol's temple are, are worshiping demons as they do it. So yeah, you could have two groups of people in that place, but anyway, I just want to call that out because I want to show that worship and faith are important words here. Not because those who believe, uh, who, sorry, worship and faith is, are important words here because they, the, the one who does not believe in those idols can't worship them, right? And so that's the group that he's addressing. There's something to be said here probably about the, the true nature of worship in general. It's that faith is always accompanied by action. Whether Christian or pagan, worship is the same everywhere. Real worship, whether of God or of demons, is done with the heart, mind, and body. Of course, we know that right worship is only given to God. Hopefully that went without saying, but there it is. In the church at Corinth, there were some people who had concluded that idols were nothing. They had great theology, but others weren't so sure. There were people there who who believed in Jesus, who were called brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet they weren't so sure. Their faith wasn't perfect. They thought maybe these idols could be real. Those people, if they went into an idol's temple, would have actually worshipped because they had the remnants of faith in those idols. This is a problem because the first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Maybe, again, you knew this. Did you know that the word before doesn't just mean ahead of or in addition to? 
point. It doesn't just mean like God is here and you shouldn't have anything up here, okay? It means you shouldn't have anything around here, right? You can't have God and then worship some idols down here. You can't have God and worship other gods down here. Before means in front of, in my presence. The commandment put more colloquially then is get all of those so-called gods out of God's face. That's your commandment. That's why you can't worship God and Allah. You can't worship Vishnu and Jesus. To do so would be to worship demons in the presence of God and thereby break the first commandment. Yet for those who do not eat with worship and faith in their hearts, eating meat is not a sin in and of itself. Again, 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Again, Paul is reinforcing the correct idea that food is, is adiaphora. It's a matter of indifference. That's the theological term, adiaphora. Matthew 15, verse 10 says, And he called the people unto him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And he goes on to say that it's that which comes out of the heart which defiles you. So, neither barbecue from the local temple of Dagon, nor falafel from the local mosque is going to increase or decrease your standing before God. What you eat, does not condemn you. Eating at McDonald's is no more a sin than eating food that you grew and cooked yourself. And it's not just food that's a matter of indifference. Stuff, objects, things, they're never inherently sinful. All of it was created by God. Sinfulness and righteousness actually just depend on the heart of the person using those things. And note that Paul here subtly transitions from objects to action. Food, he says, which is an object, will not commend us to God. And then he says, we are no worse off if we do not eat an action and no better off if we do. Now, obviously, if any action is explicitly condemned by God as sin, it's, it is sin. But raw action is never in itself sinful. The context of that action and the heart behind it or what matter. That's what makes it sin. For example, you might be going, well, Greg, what are you saying? Okay. Not all violence is sin. If it rules justly, the government wields the sword as an instrument of God's authority. That's Romans 13. But murder is sin. Violence to another person is not necessarily sin. That's the action. Murder is intent. Defending the life of another person using violence is not a sin. But killing someone for your own gain certainly is. Sex is not a sin. It becomes a sin when it's used outside of the context of marriage. Money is not sinful. Just stuff, right? But it becomes sinful when it becomes your God. Christian freedom that means that we are freed from the laws that determine what we can't handle, can't taste, or can't touch. That's Colossians 2. Verses 20 through 21. Yet there is one law that remains as an overriding principle and serves to inform and govern our use of Christian freedom. It's the same principle that I showed you in 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul speaks to those who have the opportunity to free themselves from slavery. And he says, avail yourself of the opportunity. 
What opportunity, I asked. Not the opportunity to increase your personal standing for your own good, but the opportunity to use your freedom for the good of others. The law of Christ, the law of love, that remains the guiding principle of the Christian life. And that law is summarized in the greatest commandments. Mark 12, verses 30 through 31 And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command, or no commandment greater than these. The latter of those commandments is the focus of our passage today. The people claiming to have all this great theological knowledge did not know as they ought to have known because they applied their freedom toward their own personal gain rather than the good of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They considered only their own conscience when they should have considered their neighbor's good. 1 Corinthians 8 9, moving along in the passage. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. What impressions do your actions give to those who are new in the faith, Christian? Does your freedom encourage them to sin? Or do you use your freedom for their good? What about your social media accounts? I see this all the time. People put stuff out there and I'm like, I don't know about this. What's the heart behind this? Why would you broadcast that to the world? I mean, now look, some of you need to simply stop sinning on social media, okay? But more of you need to consider what signals you're sending to people whose consciences are weaker than yours. Be careful what you post. Some of your followers are actually following you as they try to figure out what it means to live for Jesus. Are you sure you want a bigger platform? Context is key. If you don't have the opportunity to explain your actions, consider how they might look from the outside then. The question is not, could this potentially offend anyone? I'm not worried about that. The question is, are there people watching who might be led to, in the wrong direction by what I'm about to do, even if you are free in your conscience to do that thing? Look, some people will twist what you do no matter what. I'm, I'm not talking about them today. I'm talking about those who, around you who might be earnestly looking for you to lead them in what it means to follow Jesus. Look, the, the topic of alcohol always comes up in this passage because it's such a taboo subject in American churches. I'm going to tell you plainly today that drinking in moderation without drunkenness is not a sin in and of itself. It may be a sin for you because it is against your conscience or it leads you to more sin. But others may be free in this area. For those who do feel free in this area, be careful that your exercise of this freedom does not cause your brother to stumble. Alcoholism is rampant in this country. Consider what you're broadcasting. Consider what you're saying with your actions. But look, you can't stop with alcohol. Everybody wants to stop at alcohol with this passage. Think about movies, shows, music you talk about. Do you consider your audience when you say those things are good? Oh, it's such a good movie. What might the weaker brother in that context, like if, if you looked around you right then and you saw the people you were talking to, what might those people think 
you mean by good? Do they know that you're applauding the cinematic style and not the implied morality of that movie? Do they know that about you? You may be free in your conscience, but your brother may be encouraged to watch that movie against his conscience. I'm not saying you need to be morbidly obsessed about every possibility of misunderstanding here. I'm saying that you should take the principle in this passage to heart. Paul knew that there were people in Corinth who had a history with idolatry. And so, and so did these, these knowledgeable Christians there. And rather than using their freedom with reckless, wanton abandon, they should have considered their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the law of love. No, there aren't hard and fast like nice little sharp edges on, on this sermon. It's consider your brother and sister. Think about them before you go and act. Before you exercise that freedom that you have in your conscience, think about them first. The law of love must govern your exercise of freedom. That law puts your freedom to the good, uh, toward the good of others rather than your own desires. And look, if you've lived under legalism, and you now find yourself with all of this wonderful Christian freedom, that might be hard for you to hear. I get it. You might complain that this is just legalism all over again. Beholden to the masses. And that you have the right to do whatever you want, so long as it isn't inherently sinful, without any regard for others. You can do whatever you want. That's that's what you're thinking, maybe. Even more, you may feel entitled to indulge in all of those things you couldn't do before. You may feel as though you have a right to do as you please. And anyone who attempts to limit that freedom is a legalist and a Pharisee. I've heard the legalism boogeyman pulled out a lot of times. But your freedom has a purpose, Christian. And it is not for your own selfish gain. It is not for your personal short-term joy. It is for love. 1 Corinthians 8. Again, Verses 10 through 12. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, if this, this person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, is an important qualifier there. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Such an, that's, like I said, that's an important qualifier there. The brother for whom Christ died. Why is it an important qualifier? It shows the value of that person. How much more valuable is the soul of your brother or sister over your temporary happiness? I can just imagine all these proud Christians going around all the temples in the areas, eating their fill without consideration for those who might misunderstand what's going on. I can only imagine how, how confusing this might be to those who were newer to the faith, who had struggled with idolatry and things like that. They see these people out there doing this, the very same things that they used to do. And they're, they're like, well, maybe, maybe that's what Christianity is about. I don't have this in my notes, but I feel like I need to say it. If you, if you feel freedom in regards to alcohol, and you are at a place where everyone is drunk, first I would ask, why are you there? And then I'm going to ask, is it wise and is it a good witness for you to look like all the rest of the people who were there? Even if you're not drunk, you may feel free. But for the weaker brother next to you, for his sake, it might be better 
to exercise love instead of that freedom. It would have been better if those with knowledge in this passage had foregone their freedoms so that the weaker brother would not be tempted. This isn't legalism. It's love, care, and concern for the good of others over your own desires. Does this mean you're beholden to every other person's conscience? No, not at all. We could never do anything at all if that was the case. Somebody is going to be offended in their conscience at you in general if you do anything. Let's be real. But, again, there's no hard and fast, boxy thing for me to put you in today. Consider your brother. Consider if your use of freedom could encourage someone else to sin. Like I said, I'm not worried about offending the legalist, right? In fact, John Calvin comments, we need not fear giving offense to those who are not drawn to sin through infirmity, but eagerly catch at something to find fault with. That was a good quote. In other words, don't worry too much about tiptoeing around legalists, those who seek to find fault with your every action. Some people are just looking to get their jimmies rustled about pretty much anything. But those aren't the people in view in this passage. The legalist sins all on his or her own by judging something that God has not condemned. But the weaker brother sins in his conscience because of your example. That's the difference. Out of love, then, we should be concerned how our actions may affect that latter group. As to the former group, the legalists, use wisdom and be guided by love for them too. If that's a brother or sister in error, do what you can to guide them to freedom from that bondage. Love them too. Whatever freedom you have, those rights were meant to be freely exercised or freely given up for the good of the people sitting next to you in this auditorium today. Your freedom's not for your personal indulgence. And this is the example of Christ who lived under the law and gave up his freedom, not for his own good, but for ours. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. That's Philippians 2. We should follow his example. Look, this isn't going to merit your salvation. But look, you should value your brother and your sister we don't follow Jesus' example, then we might actually find ourselves responsible for the destruction of a brother or sister in Christ. How would you like to live with that on your conscience? What's worth more? Is it your self-indulgent Christian freedom or your brother's soul? You've got to put your priorities in right order. Your brother or sister is worth more than your freedom. I'm telling you this time and time again because I need you to hear it clearly. Your brother or sister is worth more than your freedom. And I'm not saying that your freedom is worthless, but I am saying it is worth less than the good of your brother. And it is good to be free to enjoy whatever God has given us, but it is better, far better, to love those around us. Far better to forego your freedom than to cause your brother to stumble and thereby sin against Christ, the one who redeemed you with his own blood. Consider that, that if you sin against your brother in this manner, really in any manner, you also sin against Christ. 
What an awful place to be. The final verse of this passage, as I begin to close here, it says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, unless I make my brother stumble. I know this passage has had a lot to it, from types of knowledge to monotheism to the distinction between the Father and the Son and to matters of conscience and and more. There's been a lot to this. But there's a singular thread, a main point, that you have to see in this chapter. And honestly, from this chapter all the way through 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to get there in a few months, but I feel like we need to read it today. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Your faith means nothing if you do not have love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. You've been wondering how you fit into the body of Christ or if you've been thinking about how you can serve this particular local body, I have an answer for you. Love God and love others. Be an example. Take a risk. Find somebody in need. Meet a need. Consider their conscience over your freedom. Work for their good. If you've fallen short of this, then repent and trust in Jesus today. He died for your sins and he's faithful to forgive. And then, being forgiven, go and use that newfound freedom for the good of others. Most of all, remember Christ who put you first as he went to the cross because he was overjoyed that his sacrifice would lead to your salvation. That's our example. Let the good of your brother be your joy. Let pleasing God be your joy. Don't let the stuff that you can and can't do in this life be your joy. Because we need love for one another. Going back to the beginning here, all the way back at the uh, very beginning of this, I would remind you of 1 John 4, 19-21. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother. He who does not love his brother has not, uh, he, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the Christian faith. You had to summarize Christian morality. It's that. Love God, love your brother. They are inseparable. You are loved by God. I think this morning I can say that most of you would say, yes, I love God. I love him back. But do you love your brother? Where there are wounded relationships, where there are difficulties, where there is anger in you, where there is schism between you and others, so much as it depends on you, go live in peace. Find peace. Forgive. When you see needs, don't go, well, that's not my problem. No, 
It's your problem. They're part of the same body as you. Consider your brother. I think if we have that sort of mentality, if we give due consideration to the people around us and we work for one another's upbuilding, then we will hopefully be doing life in church by the book. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.